0: who was berating his congregation because they hadn't given enough for him to have a new expensive watch. So the question was, what would you call such a watch? The answer, a tithex. Sorry. Couldn't help it. Steve always warns me about going ad lib. Let me open it with a word of prayer. Father, we are amazed by your faithfulness, especially when we recognize our continual distraction that leads us into idolatry in many cases. Like David, we stand in awe and say with him, What is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Our life is like a breath, our days like a passing shadow. We lose our proper focus, but you continually draw us back because it is not possible for your son to lose any that he has redeemed. Father, as we look into your word in the moments ahead, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are turned again to your goodness and the promise of mercy in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. In the recent weeks, we've been learning about the doctrines of grace, and they're summarized by the acronym TULIP, um, which unpacks these things. And Pastor Steve has taught us that these five points of doctrine are captured by the five alones. The sola is the Latin word for alone. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone as revealed in Scripture alone for God's glory alone. And these solas had been lost in the dark days of the church, but they were recovered when the Spirit of God worked through men like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and John Calvin and the Reformation that brought back to the church and to Christians the true hope that we have in the gospel. These doctrines are found throughout the Bible, but they originate in the book of Genesis. Genesis. That's the one reason for this study titled Infinite Grace and Ultimate Blessings. We've been in it since about 2020, and it was originally titled, subtitled Foundations of Redemption, but I've turned it into Foundations of the Doctrines of Grace because they occur here in Genesis. In our study, we've learned that the fall of humanity in the garden that was described in Genesis 3 brought what is called a radical corruption or a radical depravity to the human nature. Radical mean, it's it's not as if we are always doing the very worst things we can possibly do. It refers to the fact that what we do is always tainted or tarnished by our fallen nature. The doctrine of unconditional election means that before time began, each person was chosen by God to be redeemed through Jesus Christ. It results in what we learned is called particular redemption, which means that Jesus knew precisely who he was dying for when he went to the cross. Last week, we learned about efficacious grace, efficacious grace, also called effectual calling, which says that all those that God calls by his gift of faith will believe and will persevere or will will remain believers and be saved. Each of these truths is fleshed out in the pages of Scripture, but the first shadows of them we find here in the book of Genesis. But before we return to this story that we've been following of the adventures of Jacob and his developing drama around his family, before we return there, it's helpful to review some important events that we've already seen in Genesis. The first was when Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately promised a resolution to the problem that they had caused. He immediately promised a Savior would come, From Eve, from the line of Eve, this promise is made in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first announcement of Jesus Christ in the Bible. That offspring was promised would crush the head of the serpent. serpent who had deceived Eve and Adam, then Satan was behind that. At this crucial point in history, humanity was divided into two separate lines. The line of the promise, the line of Eve, would lead to an eventual savior of all humanity. But the other line would remain in darkness. They would remain enslaved to sin. They would remain unredeemed. That was God's choice because this is God's creation. So don't ask me why because I'm just the thankful messenger. But the bottom line to this division that God has made is that everyone gets justice But some people get mercy according to God's choice. Now, eventually, everyone, these two lines will go, they'll exist in an uneasy peace for for a long time. But eventually, things got so bad that God brought a cleansing flood. But he preserved a remnant out of faithfulness to his promise to Eve. Then we move forward to Genesis 12. And there we, we were introduced to a man that God had called as his next move in the redemptive plan. God chose one man. Abram was originally his name. We know him as Abraham. One man out of fallen humanity. And promised to make his name great. That he would have offspring as numerous as the stars. That they would have a land to live in. And that from Abraham would come this promised redeemer Of humanity. In Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed, it says in Genesis 12. Efficacious or irresistible grace we found in Genesis 15, 6. That's a very important verse that should be committed to our memory. Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited him with righteousness. That's grace alone through faith alone. Efficacious or irresistible grace. Now these promises were then formalized in Genesis 17 with a legal agreement. God works in legal agreement ways called covenants. This one's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's impossible for me to overstate the importance of this covenant because on it is the foundation of the entire redemptive plan of whom Jesus Christ will be the capstone. We've seen then how God worked his plan to bless Abraham with this blessing, with this promise, despite some tragic failures. And then God passed the promise to Abraham's second son, Isaac. Isaac continued in faith like his father, yet when God told Isaac that Jacob would receive the blessing, not Isaac's favorite son Esau, Isaac rebelled. He didn't like God's plan. So God worked through sin and deception that was pulled off by Rebecca, his wife, and Jacob, his second son, to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing Isaac wanted to give to Esau. God's choice of Jacob was made clear then when Jacob was given a dream. He fled from uh, Beersheba, where he was living with Isaac and his family because his brother Esau was going to kill him. He fled, and as he fled, he stopped at Bethel for the night. And he laid there, and God gave him a dream. He saw angels ascending and descending on this stairway that led to heaven. And he hears God promise to protect and prosper him. Now, Jacob realizes that this is the Lord was in this place. He builds an altar there, just as his grandfather Abraham, Abraham had first done when he came into the land. Then Jacob continues his journey. He ends up in Haran, that was Abraham's hometown. And there he meets the beautiful Rachel. She is the daughter of his mother's brother, or Jacob's uncle, named Laban. He's smitten by her, falling in love. He agrees to work seven years for the hand of Rachel. But on the wedding night, Laban substitutes his daughter Leah. Jacob wakes up in the morning to a surprise, you would say, seeing that the deceiver has been out-deceived by his uncle Laban. but. He recovers nicely, and he ends up with both sisters as wives in exchange for seven more years of service to Laban. Well, that brings us to our text today. It's in Genesis 29 and 30. So I invite you to open your Bible, Genesis 29, and we'll begin in verse 31. And I invite you to stand as I read a portion of this text. Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I've titled this message, Dueling Sisters. In this passage, Leah and Rachel are locked in a life-and-death power struggle for the affection of their shared husband, Jacob. In this society, Jacob, their husband, would have expected them to give him sons because the number of sons was the measure of a woman's worth. So whoever won this duel would gain security the loser would be consigned to obscurity the struggle was intense because the abrahamic promise was at stake which of the dueling sisters would be the mother of the messiah which would be which would receive the blessing the younger With the older sister left out in the cold, as has happened with Esau? Or would God have favor on the older Leah because she was unloved? These are the questions that swirled around this drama that's developing here. The one big idea that I want to draw out of this text is on the top of your handout, and it's this. The struggles in Jacob's family confirm the doctrine of perseverance. On the one hand, the story of the dueling sisters is about the futility of idolatry. But more importantly, it shows us that the God who calls people out of darkness and into his kingdom will complete the good work he began all the way to its glorious end. Every one of God's people will persevere and he will preserve them, however you want to make that last tulip p, because the God the Spirit, preserves their faith to the day that our faith becomes sight. So we'll look at this story in four parts: first, God saw, second, Rachel saw, third, Leah saw, and then finally. God remembered. God saw Leah was unloved. Rachel saw her sister gain an advantage. Leah saw how Rachel responded. And finally, God remembered, which is a biblical phrase that means God is advancing his redemptive plan. So look first at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Now, the Hebrew word here for hated is not an emotional response, as we often think, but it expresses an attitude of indifference. And it highlights Leah's problem here, her precarious position. She's not favored. She's an unloved wife and In this kind of a a predicament, the unfavored wife was constantly in the danger of being either mistreated or divorced in this culture. Her trouble began on her wedding night with Laban's bait and switch. Her situation became worse when Laban gave Rachel to Jacob a week later as an advance payment for seven more years of work. And even though Leah played a part in her situation in which she now finds herself, God saw Leah. He had compassion on Leah. He opened her womb, and she bore Jacob a son. Now, in ancient times, people named their children to express their hopes for them, or to mark some circumstances of their birth. For example, um, names ending in E-L refer to God. So when the barren Hannah later is blessed with a son, she named him Samuel. Samuel, which means Shem, meaning uh, named for, and El, meaning God. And Hannah would dedicate her son Samuel to to service in the temple for God. Daniel means to judge. So Daniel means God is my judge. You get the idea here. L, any name ending in L has some reference or praise for God. Now, sometimes names are a play on words. My favorite is Adam. It sounds like the Hebrew word Adama, which means dirt or dust. So the names Leah chooses here give us a kind of a window into her thinking. Her first son she names Reuben, which means to look. And it's also a play on words, which means the Lord has seen my affliction, and now my husband will love me. But apparently Jacob didn't. Verse 33 says she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Simeon. Simeon sounds like shim, shma to hear, and the Hebrew word hearing. So even though Jacob remained cold to Leah, apparently um, she thought God had heard her, but He didn't hear because Jacob remained cold. So she conceived again and named his third son Levi, a play on words that means attached, or expressing hope for. And as verse. 34, she says, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Now, we can sympathize with Leah, the unloved, the one with the shining sister, the sort of the cheerleader, rodeo queen sister, and poor Leah. But we must not miss the idolatry that has gripped her heart. She recognizes God's grace in giving her sons, but the names she chooses reveal that her deepest longing is for the love of Jacob, not God's affirmation. She seems to take God's blessings for granted in these texts, and she seeks and she continues to seek to fill the empty space in her heart, not with God or his blessings, but with Jacob, who simply doesn't love her. So Leah's misplaced desire brings us really to our first fill-in. The essence of idolatry is when something other than the living God resides at the center or at the core of our being. Something other than God resides at the core of our being Augustine was a 4th century bishop in North Africa. He spent five years writing one long prayer and meditation to the Lord. In that long prayer called his Confessions, Article 15, he wrote these familiar words. You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And that is true. We are made by a creator who has placed at our very core a longing that can only be filled by him. And it didn't matter to Leah that God had heard and answered her prayers. It was Jacob's love that she most wanted. But Jacob remained cold-hearted, keeping her deepest longing just outside of her grasp. But unfulfilled idolatry can actually be a blessing from God. And that's what we see when Leah looks to God for comfort with the birth of her fourth son. Verse 35 Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased having children. Now, the end of Leah's childbearing brings us to the second point. Rachel saw. When Rachel saw her sister's children, she envied her. And in the first verse of chapter 30, she tries to blame Jacob. She says, give me children or I shall die. Now, there's a deep irony here and a lesson about being careful about what you ask for, because the original hearers knew that Rachel would later die in childbirth. But now the real problem is not Jacob. It's unprayed prayer. Unprayed prayer. When Jacob's father Esau, or Isaac, found that his wife Rebekah was initially barren, he prayed for her for 20 years. That's not what Jacob's doing here. Instead, he responds with anger and he cuts down Rachel. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? In other words, he shrugged his shoulders and blamed God. What does that remind us of? Adam in the garden. And these unprayed prayers that he had seen his father Isaac make for his mother, it just seems to go right over his head. Jacob then fails to provide any godly leadership to his family in the next step. So Rachel offers her maid Bilha as a solution and under ancient Near Eastern law, any child born to this sort of um, surrogate would be the child of Rachel. So he offers her uh, Bilha. And Jacob takes the path of least resistance, even though he knows the heartache this had caused in his grandfather's family when Sarah, his grandmother, gave Hagar to Abraham, and the result was Ishmael. What goes around comes around. And history has to repeat itself because we don't learn the first time around, do we? Jacob should have known better. But Jacob goes along to get along, and through Bilhah, Rachel receives two sons to call her own. Now, the names that she gives them indicates her belief that God approves of her actions. The first child she names Dan, meaning he has judged. In other words, saying to everyone that God has approved of this action. The second son she names Naphtali, a Hebrew play on words that means to wrestle or struggle, indicating her triumph over her sister. Rachel believes that now she has gained the upper hand in the duel. But that brings us to the next point, Leah saw. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had cease-bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's uh, servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. She sees Rachel's strategy and she adopts the same one, giving Zilpah to Jacob as his fourth wife now. And through Zilpah, two more sons are added to Leah's score. She pulls ahead again. She names the first one Gad, meaning good fortune. And the second she calls Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew word happy. But then in verse 14, the story reaches a new low. Leah's son Reuben finds a mandrake plant out in the field. Now in Harry Potter the scream of a mature mandrake root could cause death. But in the ancient Near East, the mandrake, a plant from the nightshade family, was believed to enhance female fertility. Now, as the oldest son, the firstborn son, Reuben stands to gain an advantage with any gain his mother may make in the family, so he brings the mandrakes to Leah. Word spreads quickly, though, and it wasn't long before Rachel's at the tent asking for a share of these mandrakes. And Leah's not interested in sharing these with her chief rival until Rachel says, I'll give you a night with Jacob in exchange for the mandrakes. It's sad to see God's intent for marital intimacy to be reduced to a commodity to be exchanged for food. Irony number two is how Jacob is reaping what he had sown years before when he insisted his brother Esau trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. But most ironic is that Leah, who gave up the mandrakes, is the one who becomes pregnant. She has two more sons, and the names she chooses is an appropriate warning for us and our next villain. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. Defeated idols have a way of coming back to haunt us again. Defeated idols have a way of coming back to haunt us again, and when Judah was born, Leah said, "Now I will praise God. Well, now she names her new son, Issachar, a word whose root mean root uh, meaning is to hire or paid for service, and she says in the text that it's to it's, it's because she gave Zilpah to Jacob, but clearly she has the mandrake exchange deal in mind here. Second son she names Zebulun. This is her sixth son. And she says in verse 20, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Her words reveal the truth that the idols that she thought she had put away have come back to haunt her again. And even while she acknowledges God's gift of more children, she has still as her deepest desire, Jacob's love. She just can't let it go. And, you know, maybe she does win a bit of his affection because in verse 21, it says that she later bore Jacob a daughter that she named Dinah. But the joy she should have over being blessed by God with more children is dimmed by the unfulfilled desire for her husband's affection. Now it would be a downer if the story ended here. Except for our last point, God remembered. Follow along as I read from verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. God hadn't forgotten Rachel, but Rachel sure seems to have forgotten God. Looking into the beautiful face of her newborn son, Joseph, she gives him a name that says, God, do it again. Do it again. She's not satisfied with what God has given her. And like vampires, it seems that when we think we've killed our idols, they just don't stay dead. Just like Leah, Rachel idolized Jacob's affection, and that idol was not dead. Joseph is a word that means to add or do it again. And she looks in his face and says, thank you, God, but more. So this particular chapter of history of God's people, it ends on this pathetic note. So what's the application? Well, one possible application would be to warn us against idolatry. I could warn you that we live in a materialistic, cultural society filled with idols. I could remind you to watch out because we all tend to take good things and make them into ultimate things. That's the essence of idolatry. We also see poor leadership here in the family. So we could talk about male headship and proper leadership but also to listen properly to his wife and, and, and to evaluate all things that the two of them working together come up with, evaluate them in the light of Scripture and have a proper biblical leadership family. We could make that point as well. But you know what? You already know this. And I would rather focus us on the indicative here, which tells us what we are, so that we can each go out from here and meet the imperatives, what we should do. Because that's the important thing. We know that we should put off gossip. And envy. We know that we should put off idolatry and putting things at the center of our heart that can never satisfy. We know all these things. We do them, and we know that we have the power of the Spirit to stop doing them, to die to self. So what's the focus here then? We need to consider some events earlier in Genesis to see what the focus should be. The words, God remembered, first appear in reference to Noah when God saw that humanity had become so corrupt and the earth was filled with so much violence you see the the two lines from eve the godly line that would be redeemed and the ungodly godly line that would remain in darkness the ungodly line had grown to the point where the entire world was filled with corruption and violence and was about to overrun the godly line. But God, being rich in mercy, what he did was he brought a cleansing flood. Satan's power had become so numerous and so violent that the text says the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So God brought this great cleansing flood. But because of his promise to Eve, he preserved a remnant of his creation and his creatures through Noah. Now, when the judgment was done, Genesis 8.1 says, And God remembered Noah. God then dried out his earth, and he gave Noah the same instructions he gave to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. But then, God made a covenant promise. Genesis 9, 11, God said to Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. It's a covenant with a covenant sign, rainbow. This promise is called the Noahic covenant. And it's the reason that God brings the rain and the sun and the change of seasons so that all things on earth can be fruitful and flourish. This is called God's common grace. And it's given to both the unredeemed and the redeemed lines of humanity. Now standing alongside this covenant of common grace made with Noah is the special grace of the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis 17, where God binds himself to the promise to protect and give countless offspring and a land and ultimately the promise of a Savior for humanity that he first made to Eve, then made to Adam or Abraham in Genesis 12, and now confirmed by covenant in Genesis 17. It's unchanging. It's the foundation of the entire redemptive story. And the messiness that we see in the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and throughout the history of Israel is because it's messy business redeeming people from a powerful foe. Maybe your God's act of bringing you into the kingdom of light was smooth and pleasant lucky you wasn't for me it's not easy dying to self it's nasty business putting off some of these idols so the reason for all the drama that we see in jacob's family it's because of God's work to rescue these first saints in spite of the resistance that comes from their fallen nature. God is molding them into the image of Christ to be his people. And it's loud and it's hot and it's dusty industrial work. And that's why we see all of this drama throughout the Old Testament. And that's why we experience all the drama in our own lives. In other words, God remembered, alert us to the fact that God has a, is now advancing again His redemptive plan. God remembered Noah, and the plan advanced. Now God remembers Rachel as He begins to broaden the base of His redeemed people from one man called out of idolatry in the city of Ur; they were moon worshippers, to His son Isaac to Isaac's second son, Jacob, but now he's expanding it out to Jacob's 12 sons as God steps up the pace to grow the nation of Israel. Leah will be blessed by being directly in the line to Christ through her son Judah. Rachel is remembered and blessed through her son Joseph who God will use to protect the godly line as it grows in the midst of the ungodliness of Egypt. Then when the time is right, God will deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, and this event is the primary shadow of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's why the Exodus shows up over and over again in Israel's worship, because it points us forward to what happened on the cross to our redemption from slavery, for God freeing us from the wiles of sin. But as we go through the Old Testament and the history of Israel unfolds, God places them in the land, but they thrive there until eventually idolatry returns and sends them into exile. John Calvin said what? Our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture them even when there aren't any around. Redemption, though, is messy work, and that's what we see. But God will prevail and preserve each one he has chosen in eternity past and called in in time and space to be brought into his kingdom for his son. That's perseverance or preservation, however you want to define that final P in tulip. But the point is our, then our final fill-in, fill and let's make it personal. God remembered me, and he will sustain me until I am home and glorified in his eternal kingdom. God remembered you, and he will sustain you through all things until you are home and glorified in his eternal kingdom. And I think this helps us understand why the Bible's filled with all this drama. But in all the anguish and error and foolishness and mistakes of God's people, they all pale in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that shines from every page of this book. All those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he called, the effectual calling. And those he called, he justified crediting them with the alien righteousness earned by Christ, given to us by his grace. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And all he justified, he has promised to glorify. And he will preserve us through his spirit until, as I said, the day our faith becomes sight and we see him face to face doctrines of grace here in Genesis give us good reason to trust these promises. Because God has always been faithful, which means he always will be faithful until Christ returns. The promise of perseverance that this story introduces will set up Pastor Steve's message next week when he talks about that final P goes deeper into this. But until then, take comfort in the hope that Jacob and Leah and Rachel and their children had by knowing the power of God's spirit will carry us all until we receive the prize at the end of our race. Because if God can use them, he can certainly use you and me for his glorious ends as well. The great statement on Grace alone, faith alone is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, of course. Everyone knows that verse. It is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. But what about Ephesians two ten? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that he has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And understanding who we are because of this redemption, understanding who we are in the line of the Redeemer gives us the strength and the ability and the prayers to the Spirit that empower us to respond rightly in this world of putting off idols and putting on Jesus Christ. And as we do, we continue to look forward, as Paul says, to the prize that awaits us, which is our crown of glory. And I trust you will do just that. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your power to bring us out of darkness and into your glorious light. We're so thankful that you have written our names in your book of life in eternity past. Before anything was, you knew. And what you have brought about in time and history, time and space, is our salvation. And we thank you that you promise to preserve us so that we can persevere in the strength of your Spirit. And may your Spirit encourage us to meditate on your good blessings so that we would enjoy the good things that we have from you, from your common grace, yet hold as our ultimate joy, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, whom you have given to us by your special grace. Father, we can't thank you enough, but we do our best to glorify you in all that we say and do. And in this, all of God's people said, Amen.